To Foothill Bible Church, we feel like we're coming back to family. We feel that way this morning. And it's because of the cross that we are one family, isn't it? As we've come to trust what Christ did on that cross, he's put us into his family. Some of you that we're meeting here, we're meeting for the first time. When we come back to family, the Lord has brought other people into the family. So I'll just let you know a little bit about who we are. I asked my wife Lillian to stand up. Some of you may not have met her. We're Dan and Lillian Hubiar. We've been in Brazil for the last 12 years. And today we also have the privilege of our son and daughter-in-law visiting. I'd like to ask David and Kathleen if they could stand up for a moment to you. Some of you know David, but you don't remember him looking like that. <laughs> might not recognize him. So David and Kathleen were married in August of last year, so we're glad they could visit today too. Thanks. We've been in kind of a journey the last several months. Uh, we talked about that a lot more Sunday night, for those of you who were there, I'll just give kind of a quick summary this morning to let you know what's happened in our life. It was back in August, just out of the clear blue sky. We were sitting there in our apartment in the city of Boa Vista in Brazil with the fan on, full blast like always, and reading the emails. And one of the emails that came across was uh, just a complete surprise to us, something we hadn't thought about at all, but one of the leaders at the mission Crossworld, where we serve. The headquarters in Crossworld is in Philadelphia. And they had sent us an email saying that over the past several weeks, your name has come up in a lot of our conversations, a lot of our meetings, because we believe that God would want you and your wife to come and serve in the headquarters of Crossworld here in the United States. Or at least we can dialogue about whether God wants that or not. They didn't tell me what God's will was. but They, <laughs> they said, we'd like to start talking about that possibility with you. Well, it was a surprise and it was a lot of emotions to think about that kind of change. But over the process of about three months, with a lot of prayer, a lot of study of the word and talking to friends who know the Lord that could give us some counsel, we did make that decision that it was the 1st of December. I remember clearly that day that we made the decision, yes, uh, we believe that God would want us to move into a different ministry, but in the same direction. That's the, the neat thing about it, is that we'll be working in Philadelphia, in the headquarters of Crossworld, but in a way actually expanding the work that we've been doing there. We've been focusing on taking the gospel to two specific people groups in Brazil, the Makushi and the Ingariko in northern Brazil, but now it looks like the God is expanding, kind of multiplying our ministry to where we'll continue to have influence and contact with those missionaries in Brazil in the position that will be called international director, working with the missionaries and planning strategy and encouraging them, pastoring them in their work. But not only Brazil, now also the city of Puebla, Mexico, and one or two countries in Asia that we'll be responsible for. So. We'll get to know a little bit about some of that jet lag that uh, David and Carol experienced this past week traveling to Asia. It looks like about one trip per year to each of those places, and then the rest of the time living in Philadelphia, maintaining contact. We have so many ways of communicating these days, which makes things a lot different. Before the missionary that had gone over to another country, if the home office asked him for some information or something, he knew he had plenty of time because they'd never know how long it took the letter to get there, how long it would take for the mail to get back. But now they're asking for information today. You know, later this afternoon, could you get back to me on that? And they know that you have access. 
Yeah, the communication is much, much more right on top of things these days. It's been really good in terms of prayer requests because a missionary can immediately have thousands of people praying for a specific request in all areas of the world within the first days. So uh, communication has really changed things. So we're thankful for the way the Lord's directing us. You know, there's still those times that we think about, well, what's going on back there? What's going on with, with Getulia? What's happening right now with Arnaldo? All these people, these Makushi and Ingariko people that we've gotten to know and uh, wanting to continue to be praying for what's happening in their lives. A few ways the Lord has really confirmed this decision after we made the decision. One is that both of the main ministries we were involved in there, the encouragement of the Makushi churches, and then the pioneering work, Bible translating and learning the language among the Ingariko, both of those now, God has brought Brazilian missionaries, national missionaries, to continue that work. So in a way, he used us to kind of get things rolling, but then to hand off that work to national missionaries. So we're encouraged to see that. And uh, it appears also that the Lord is working in the hearts of our own son and daughter-in-law, David and Kathleen, that they're also interested in being used to work among the Makushi churches in northern Brazil. So God may have taken one person out and bringing another person in from the same family. So it's neat how the Lord is confirming that it's okay that we're leaving that area at this time. Uh, there's other things that need to be done here. We kind of talked at Crossville and said, well, why do you take these missionaries that are already, you know, they've got their visas, learned the language, they're in the middle of the work there. You know, why not get somebody else that hasn't gone to all that preparation and work? And they say, well, we have to have somebody that's doing that. We have to have somebody that's been in the work, that knows what it's like. Because if you go to try to encourage and shepherd a missionary that's been working in another country and you haven't been there, they'll just look at you and listen to you politely. But in their heart, they'll just be thinking, you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't know what's going on in my heart. You don't understand what it's like to be in all this cross-cultural situation. So every time that they brought in to, to make up this team. There's a team of six international directors. Every one of those they, they pulled out of active ministry in another country that those people had been prepared for and, and worked hard to be involved in. So it's just the nature of, of filling this position is that it's always kind of a difficult thing. Somebody has to stop in the middle of what they're doing that they've been preparing for and go and, and be used instead to, to encourage others in that area. The other option is to try to grab people from other missions, but that's kind of frowned upon by the other mission agencies. <laughs> Wait a minute, we've already got this person in the right position. So we try not to do that and try to stick there within the, the mission cross-world. Some of you, that might be still an unusual word to hear cross-world, but it's what used to be called UFM. That might be a little bit more familiar. But being on the East Coast, it is a little bit less familiar in this area. But we're really thankful for their focus they basically sum up their values by saying, we worship, we love, we go. Just to keep it simple. Uh, worship is a high priority in all aspects of the work. Every team that's working as a, a team of missionaries working together, uh, they have worship times together. Every team leader is considered to be primarily a worship leader. And then the loving part is encouraging one another as believers that there's a lot more caring going on now than there used to be in the past from missionary to missionary as you know, they're facing a lot of difficulties in cross-cultural work. But then, of course, the distinctive we go you know, as a mission agency to help churches basically in mobilizing believers in those churches to do the job of the church, which is to send 
the message, send people with the message to other countries around the world. And so that's what we're trying to do, along with a lot of other good mission agencies. Uh, we're working to, to get that message sent. In the process of trying to make this difficult decision, we knew that we needed to pray a lot together. Lillian and I prayed together many times about the decision. We knew that we needed to seek counsel from others who were people of the word. We didn't want to seek counsel from just anybody, but people who knew God and who knew his word. And we did that. In fact, we were talking to, to the elders of this church before we made the decision. Uh, we, did, we asked them not to tell everybody about it, just in case we decided not to do it. And everybody's all confused about what are the Hubiars doing? What's going on? So we were talking to them ahead of time and, and getting their thoughts on the thing, too. And ourselves getting into the word. In fact, one of the times that I really wanted to study the most was when we were in the middle of one of our visits into the Ingariko area. And whenever we make that trip up there by airplane, our weight is really limited. They, have, they weigh everything. They weigh you. you know, when you get on the airplane, you have to step on the scale so everybody finds out how much you weigh. Oh, some of the ladies have gotten smart and they get on there with their suitcase. So nobody knows. <laughs> so, good thinking. So what I was doing, instead of every time carrying a Bible up there with me, because the Bible's kind of heavy, I would just leave one up there, one up there and one back in the city. But I really wanted to have a Makushi Bible, because some of the Ingariko people can understand when I read a little bit from the Makushi. And it's a Makushi Portuguese bilingual. So most of the, almost all the Bible reading that I did down there was in Portuguese, so I would just take that and use the Portuguese part. But uh, the weight is a really critical thing. I remember one time that uh, there was an airplane in one of the Yanomami areas. This is another people group down there. The Yanomami village had three people, three Yanomamis that needed to go to the city. And so they kind of estimated the weight of the three guys and they, they weighed some of their backpacks and other things and they wanted to bring an entire stock of bananas. I don't know if you've ever carried one of those things, but they weigh probably something like 20 pounds. I mean, it's really heavy. So this is really adding a lot to the weight. So the pilot was looking at it and all the weight and the, the length of the airstrip, grass airstrip in the jungle. And he said, look, I don't think we're going to be able to take, we're, we're about 10 pounds overweight. So we're going to have to take something out. So the three Yanomami guys, they sat down and ate half of the stock of bananas. There's always more than one way to solve a problem. <laughs> so I was doing this basically, just trying to cut down weight. And in the village then, I had this Makushi Bible, but the problem is it's only a New Testament. And I really, every time I face a critical decision in my life, what I like to do is read through the book of Proverbs with that specific thought in mind. How does the book of Proverbs address this decision that I have to make right now or this particular topic? Well, the New Testament doesn't have the book of Proverbs, right? So... I was sitting there trying to think, what would be the equivalent of the book of Proverbs in the New Testament? I don't know what you would come up with. But I was thinking about it, and I decided the closest I could think of was the book of James. The book of James also deals with a lot of different topics, coming at it from a, a wisdom perspective. And so I, I turned to the book of James, and you can turn there with me this morning. I'm just going to kind of take you on my journey with me this morning, that as we were searching for wisdom and the decisions we need to make. And there is an insert in your bulletin there too called True Wisdom. Before we go to James chapter 3, turn first of all to James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And if you are using one of those Bibles here that were in the church for you, it's page 1207 
James chapter 1. Verses 5 and 6 are very familiar verses, but as I read them in the particular situation we were in, they took on kind of a, a stronger meaning than I'd ever felt before in reading those. I'm reading from the New King James Version, so follow along in whichever version that you have. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. A lot of times when we ask God for things in prayer, when we talk to him, we say, Lord, if it's your will, please do this. If it's your will, accomplish that. And as I read this, I realized that I don't have to say that in this case. Lord, if it's your will, give me wisdom. Because he's making it very clear here that if you lack wisdom, it will be given to him. And he said, don't even doubt. If you ask in faith, you shouldn't be doubting whether he might give it or he might not give it. It's his will to give you wisdom. And so I did that. I said, Lord, I'm going to ask for wisdom and trust that you are going to give us the wisdom that we need. Trust that when we finally do make a decision, you're going to be controlling that. You're going to be accomplishing in our hearts the desire to do the thing that you want to do and guide us in your wisdom. And that was a real encouragement to me and just a kind of a sigh of relief that I don't have to be responsible to be the final decision maker in this whole process. I can trust that God is going to guide me. And when that decision is made, we're not going to second guess and say, oh, maybe we did the wrong thing. Maybe we didn't. We're going to say God guided the decision and we're going in his direction. And so that was the first step. And as I was reading through the first chapter of James and then went on reading the rest of the book, I noticed an interesting thing about the way that James presented this book. Here, as, as God is authoring this book through James, the first chapter is basically just an introduction to all of the topics of the book. It just kind of opened up the whole book for me because to me in the past it had always just been kind of a random list of topics. You go from one thing and then all of a sudden you're talking about the rich people and the poor and then all of a sudden about the tongue and our speech. And I couldn't quite understand it, but actually the first chapter talks about all of those things. It talks about uh, the rich and the poor. It talks about trials about faith, about good works. It talks about our speech and it talks about wisdom. All of that's in the first chapter. And then, starting in chapter 2, he begins developing all those things with, with more detail and more substance. I think ha having lived in an indigenous culture now for a period of time, it sort of helped me to see that because, you know, in our Western style of presenting facts, we tend to use a kind of a sort of a Greek-Roman logic where we say, okay, here's something that we believe to be true. Now, if that's true, then this next thing should also be true. And there's a certain sequential logic that we like to follow and we make our outlines and everything fits into that. But in more of an Eastern, and, and it seems like the indigenous groups do have a lot of Eastern influence. A lot of people think maybe they came from Asia by some manner, by boats or across a land bridge. But the indigenous people of North and South America uh, the way of thinking is much more Eastern. And in the Eastern way of thinking, a lot of times we don't think about first one part of the problem, then another part, and then another part, but we think about the whole thing at once. Think about all parts of the situation. And maybe we'll look at a little bit from this aspect, a little bit from this aspect, but always everything is in view. 
And so what I see here is kind of a sort of more of a spiraling sense of explaining facts. He starts by going kind of in a tight circle, explaining all the things. Then he starts making a wider circle. He talks about all those same things again. And then several of them, he talks about them again. And each time it's adding a little bit more to our understanding of that area. And so that really helped as I was kind of studying through James to see, okay, that's why he's talking about this again. It's just one more time around that circle to reinforce the message that God is giving to the readers. So after I read that in, in about wisdom in James chapter 1, I thought, well, there's probably some more about it here then. And sure enough, I found that over in James chapter 3. So turn there with me too as the Lord was just helping us to see a little bit more detail of what does wisdom really look like. James 3, now this is just a couple pages over there, page 1209 if you're using those Bibles. And in verses 13 through 18, let's just read that together because it, it turns out that wisdom doesn't involve just making uh, certain big decisions in our lives. Uh, the more that I studied wisdom, I was just impressed more and more that wisdom is a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour thing throughout our entire life. It involves everything in our life. All of the time we're making decisions. We're always trying to decide if we're going to do what God would want or not. So there's this wisdom that he's talking about here is a necessary quality for every person's life. Let's read verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is kind of divided up in an unusual way. The wisdom from above, or what we're calling true wisdom, is talked about in verse 13, and then down in verses 17 and 18. And then right in the middle there, there's kind of a block, verses 14 through 16, that talk about the opposite, the contrary, the false wisdom. And so... We'd like to look at it kind of with that idea. First of all, what is this true wisdom? How can we recognize if we have that in our lives? Because when he asks this question here, who is wise and understanding among you? The idea is that a lot of people will say, I am, you know, raise their hands. Yep, that's me, wise and understanding. That's me. And if we look in, if you, in fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says five times there are warnings against being wise in our own eyes. So apparently this is a, a common problem among human beings, that we tend to look at ourselves and say, I basically know what I need to know. I pretty much have things figured out. Uh, my opinion is the right opinion in almost all cases. I can <laughs> tell other people, you know, how to get things done in the right way. And we, we kind of feel like we pretty much know the right thing to do and the right way to think about things. And so when he asks that question, I imagine that James there in his mind is thinking, who is wise and understanding among you? A lot of people are going to be saying, yeah, that's me. And so then he comes back and says, okay, then show it. How do you show that? He says, let him show by good conduct 
that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And in verse 17, he actually tells us what is the source. The source for that wisdom is from above. This wisdom, it says, is from above. In fact, we just read in chapter 1, didn't we? If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men. So the source of true wisdom is from God. A person who has true wisdom is a person who's going to be going to God's word. A person that's going to be seeking wisdom at its source. God who is all wise. We call him omniscient, omniscient just meaning that he's all wise. So if we go and get wisdom from its source, then we tend to have true wisdom and not some kind of false substitute for it. So that's its source. It's down in verse 17. But in verse 13, it starts telling us a little bit about the characteristics of this kind of wisdom, this true wisdom. And it talks about it really on two levels. The heart level and then what's on the outside, what comes out. In the heart level, it talks about meekness. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And then, of course, on the outside, it's talking about the good conduct, the way that we live, the works. But it starts from the inside. It sort of reminds me of what James said about faith, doesn't it? He said, you say you have true faith? Well, then let's see it by the action. Let's see it by your works. If you have real faith, it should show by the works. Well, now he's saying if you have real wisdom, that should also show by the works. It's an evidence. And just like there could be a false faith, quote-unquote faith, where somebody's saying, yeah, I believe, but by their actions it's obvious that they don't really have trust in Christ. He's saying the same thing could happen here with wisdom. We can have a false, quote-unquote, wisdom where a person says, I am wise and I am understanding, but by their actions we see that they're not. Let's look first, though, at the heart, because that's the source of the actions. In the heart it says, these works should be done in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness or the idea of humility, the idea of recognizing that, that I'm not the greatest, that, that God is, and that this wisdom actually comes from Him. That hum, idea of humility is not something we normally connect with, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge. In our way of thinking, as a person gets more knowledge, that usually causes them to be more proud that they got that knowledge. Put more letters after their name as they go through and getting more degrees or maybe even put it on their license plate, you know, the degree that they got. And just to let everybody know that I'm wise, you know, I've, I've learned these things. And sometimes, of course, we know that that's not necessarily even wisdom, but just knowledge. <laughs> knowledge is knowing all of those things. Wisdom is knowing what to do with those and actually using them in a practical way. But many times, even that person that knows how to use that knowledge doesn't really know how to use it in the way that God would want. And so it's that kind of false wisdom. So this is kind of contrary to our way of thinking to say that those works should be done in the humility that wisdom brings, basically, is what's happening. If it's true wisdom, it should be not creating pride in your heart because of all the things you know and all the wisdom you have, but it should be creating humility in your heart as you recognize that this wisdom doesn't come from me, it comes from God. It was a while back in the Crossroad Mission that the president got all of the leaders of the mission together and said, let's try to make a list of what we need to see in missionaries. What are the qualifications that we as a mission believe that a missionary should have for us to be able to send them out into these cross-cultural situations that are very challenging? 
And so they sat down for a long meeting and made a long list of, I think it was about 25 characteristics that they felt every missionary should have these qualities in their life. And he said, okay, this, this is really good. These are, these are good, but let's try to limit this down to the top ten. So let's start crossing out. So they crossed out, okay, that one, I guess that could be a little lower priority. Cross out that one. Cross, they came down to ten that they said were really absolutely essential. Okay, let's, what are the top three of these? So they started crossing out some more, crossing out some more. And of course, he was going to find out what did they consider to be the top one. And after they crossed out all but one, humility. Isn't that interesting that a, a missionary, in the opinion of those men who had served on the field, who had counseled many, many missionaries, to them, humility was the key factor that was necessary to be able to do that job. Because once a person has humility and recognizes that God is the one who provides the strength, the wisdom, the message, and everything, then it's so much easier for that person to become dependent on God to do it, to do the work through their life. And it's so much easier if that person needs counsel to accept the counsel from another person and say, okay, I know that within myself I don't have all the answers. You know, God is teaching me. He's teaching you and he can teach me through you at times. And so it just makes everything work so much easier. It makes the teams work together better. If each team member is humble and recognize that they can learn from one another, then there's that unity and there's the interaction. So that was the quality that they came up with as the highest one. And God's word here is confirming to us that that's a, something that wisdom should be producing in a person's life is humility. And then on the outside... As the wisdom is working through that humility are the, the good works. Doing those things that God wants you to do in your life. That's what true wisdom is characterized by. If you look in verse 17, it gets very detailed to explain what some of these things are. And as I was reading that, it just encouraged me, you know, as we did decide to take the international director job, that these are some things that need to be happening in my life. This job is going to take a lot of wisdom. And it's going to be for both of us. We asked him, you know, when the international director makes these trips, could his wife go also? Would that be allowed? And they say, not only allowed, but strongly encouraged. Yes, we want you to go as a couple. We want the missionaries there to receive counsel and encouragement from a married couple, not just from a, a man that's going over there. So as we travel together, like this could be our biggest prayer request during these, these months, is that God would really be accomplishing through us his wisdom and the decisions we need to make. In verse 17, it says, this wisdom from above is pure. In other words, it's not the kind of thing where somebody has a hidden agenda and they're trying to sort of use wisdom or use trickery to accomplish their plan or their strategy. It's not that they're strategizing to use this wisdom in a, in a certain way, but they're, they really have pure motives. They want what's best for that other person. They want what's best for the glory of God that they're pure. And the actions of the person who has true wisdom should be pure also, should be in conformity with God's Word. It talks about being peaceable. A lot of times a person who knows the facts and knows more than another person doesn't really generate peace if they don't do it in, with the right heart attitude, do they? They can start just saying, well, this is the way it is and I know that and I can cut down every one of your arguments and, and here we go. This is the final answer and I've got it all figured out. But this says the true wisdom is peaceable. It's trying to 
accomplish decisions in a group in a peaceful way or in a family. True wisdom in a family doesn't just try to to win all of the arguments and say this is the way it's got to be. And it talks more about that here in a little bit. But peace is produced by that. Another characteristic of true wisdom is that it's gentle, considerate of another person. A person with true wisdom will think about the way that they say something and how the other person is going to hear that. Communication is really creating understanding in the other person, not just transmitting a lot of things that you want the other person to hear. And so in a gentle way, it's possible to think about what we're saying and think about how the other person is hearing that, that wisdom that God is trying to speak through us. Willing to yield is a tough one because that's saying that when we're in a discussion that maybe is controversial, sometimes called an argument, (laughs) but when we're having those kind of a decision-making thing where people might not agree, that we would be listening to what the other person is saying, not just politely listening and waiting for them to get done, but really listening to why they believe what they believe, why they have that point of view, trying to understand how they can see it from that viewpoint and being willing to change our viewpoint if the other person has a a good explanation. Be willing to change our viewpoint without a lot of struggle (laughs) to try to get it to happen. Of course, obviously here we're not talking about things that are absolutes in God's Word. (laughs) If God's Word has an absolute, we've done our best that we can to understand and interpret it correctly and we believe that God's Word states something as an absolute fact, then we're not willing to yield (laughs) about that. God said this, and it's very clear, and a lot of things in the Bible are very clear. People say, oh, you can't understand the Bible, it's so hard to interpret. There are some places that are very hard to interpret. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are extremely clear if we're willing to read it for what it says. And I'm not saying that those things are ones that we would be willing to yield on. Those things are absolutes. But there are a lot of other things that are the way that we maybe use the Bible or the way that we want to do a particular ministry, the way that we, the forms about how we accomplish ministry. There's so many things that are not absolutes in the Bible, but that can be changed. Uh, Our mission right now is kind of in a constant search to determine what makes the church the church, no matter the culture. Those are the essentials. That's the core of of the church. Those are the things that don't change, the non-negotiables. But around that, the forms of how the church accomplishes what it does, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And in our daily life, there's a lot of different ways that we can do things. And within a, a couple, in a marriage, as they're working out how to accomplish this, how much money to spend on that, how much time to spend over here, should we be doing that? Each person needs to really be having their ears open, really listening, really understanding to what the other person has to say, and taking the time to listen without thinking about what your next thing is that you're going to say. Right? If you're just thinking about what you're going to say, then you can't really listen and evaluate and, and reason with the other person what they're trying to say. So in a marriage, in a family, with your children, you know, do you really sit down and listen to what your children is trying to explain? You know, why this happened? <laughs> you say, look, something went wrong there. You didn't do what you were supposed to, and so that's that. Well, maybe they do have a real reason why it happened. Most of the time they don't. But <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, is that recorded? Yeah. 
I know sometimes they really do. But we as parents, uh, we in a family, we always need to be listening, truly listening to one another in a respectful way. And so this willing to yield, this is a, a critical thing. It's a characteristic. It's a way to identify true wisdom if somebody is actually listening and doesn't feel like that they already have everything figured out. It's full of mercy and good fruits. This kind of wisdom sees needs around them, has compassion. See how much it involves so many things in our life. Because wisdom is it's something that's happening all the time, using wisdom or not using it. And so as we see a need, we have compassion for those that are in need. We have compassion for those that need to hear the gospel. And we show good fruits, another way of saying the actions in our lives. And then it says without partiality. In other words, we're not going to say, okay, this person, I'll listen to their opinion because most of the time they agree with me. But this other person, they just don't know what they're talking about. So no matter what they say, that's just the way they are. And so I'll just let them talk and not really pay much attention to what they have to say. That's partiality. It's like you've already decided before the person even has a chance to, to say anything that they're worth listening to and they aren't. That, you know, sometimes they call that prejudice. Sometimes they call that uh, discrimination. But we're just deciding that this particular person, because of who they are, because of what they've done in the past, or uh, maybe just because of the, the kind of person they are, maybe from another culture or something like that, I just can't understand the way these people are. So, you know, they, they don't matter as much to me as somebody else that's my good buddy. So this is a partiality, is a, or being without partiality is a sign that somebody has true wisdom, and of course, without hypocrisy. Everybody recognizes when somebody's trying to be something that they really aren't. You know, they're trying to give that wisdom. They're trying to maybe counsel, trying to explain things, but they haven't really applied that to their own life. You know, they're maybe taking God's word and trying to apply it to your life, but they don't take God's word and apply it to their own. It needs to start in the heart of the person who has this wisdom. It needs to start with them first. They need to become the man or woman of God that God wants them to be, and then God can use their wisdom in the hearts of other people as well. Well, the result of all that, we already hinted at that when it said that wisdom is peaceable. But in verse 18, it comes out very clear and says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, that as somebody is using true wisdom, that tends to cause things to happen a lot more peacefully. It brings a lot of unity uh, certainly there are some people that no matter what you do, <laughs> they're not going to be unified. And it says in God's word that we should try to, as much as is possible, as much as is possible within us, live at peace with all men. But sometimes part of it depends on the other person. And if they insist on peace not happening, it won't happen. <laughs> but God is saying, from our standpoint, we should take out whatever barriers that we can to having that unified and peaceful relationship with another person. And that's the result of true wisdom. That's one of the things that true wisdom uh, produces and yields in our lives. One of the best ways to understand this true wisdom is also to look at the other hand, back in verse 14. What's the source of the false, quote-unquote, wisdom? We're calling it wisdom, but we know it's not really wisdom. Well, the source of it is Kind of frightening, actually. If you look in verse 15, it says it doesn't come from above, but it says it's earthly. In other words, it's wisdom 
that we have among us as humans. You know, it's human wisdom. Things that you might hear from somebody on the on a talk show or on the internet, one of those forwarded messages, you know, oh, this kind of wisdom that everybody's passing around to each other. Nobody really knows if it's true or nobody really knows if it's really the best way of doing things. But lots of people said so. So it seems pretty good. That's kind of the earthly and also the sensual. The idea there is translated in my in my translation here. Sensual is just kind of the opposite of spiritual, really, is the way it's being used here. That word is used many times to be the opposite of of what is spiritual. It's not guided by the spirit. It's guided by our own ways of thinking. It's not really that uh, the supernatural influence of God through his word to give us the wisdom that we need. It's just something that's happening right here on a horizontal level among people. But then also it goes as far as to say demonic. There's no other way to translate demonic. It's a very clear word that Satan, through his demons, is influencing the minds of people to get them to make decisions the way he would want them to be made, get them to make decisions contrary to the way that God would want. And to even think as they're making those decisions that they're being wise in accomplishing that. So not only are the decisions themselves kind of deluded and uh, deceived by Satan, but even the person's mind as they're doing it is, is deceived, thinking that he's doing the right thing, the best thing, and the wisest thing. So there's really no way for us within ourselves to kind of evaluate if I have true wisdom or false wisdom just by looking at the, the decision and thinking, well, that seems kind of right, or no, that doesn't quite seem right, it doesn't feel right. We don't really have the capability to do that within ourselves because we're so easily guided by our own mind and we can be influenced by Satan and by his demons. The way that we can know if it's true wisdom is if it comes from the Word. If it comes from God's word, that's the only way that we can really trust to know that we're having the true wisdom instead of the false. And these characteristics, look at how it's characterized in verse 14. A person who doesn't have true wisdom but has false wisdom, what, what, kind, of things is happen, what kind of things are happening in their lives? Well, it mentions two of them here, bitter envy and self-seeking. And those are mentioned again in verse 16, the same ones, envy and self-seeking. Bitter envy, in other words, seeing what's happening in other people's lives, wishing that that was happening in mine, regardless of whether it's something material, uh, a promotion, if it's something that just seems good that's happening to them, and I wish I had that, and I don't get it, so then it grows inside of me, that desire grows into bitterness. I just feel so bitter that I wasn't able to receive what they had. Now, how is that connected with wisdom? Well, because the person with this false wisdom is usually trying to use that to manipulate circumstances for their own benefit. That's kind of where the self-seeking comes in. They're, they're connected there. And so as he's self-seeking, thinking that his way of doing things is always the best way, thinking that he knows the, the right answer to everything and wanting to do those things that will accomplish the best for him, you know, to bring benefits to himself, when that doesn't happen, then he has that bitterness because of not getting what he wanted. So that's quite a bit different. <laughs> Those characteristics are completely different from what we looked at in verse 17 with the, a pure motive, uh, being peaceable and gentle and willing to yield. We don't see that. If somebody's using false wisdom, we can see it right away in, the, in their actions and in their life and in their, 
the way that they portray their thoughts, that they're really trying to accomplish everything in a way that will be best for themselves. And that's not that unusual for that to happen. Even those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior and we're, we're wanting to live by following Christ, a lot of times it's very easy because it's so natural for us to try to make our decisions based on what will be best for me or what will make me look better in the eyes of other people, what will accomplish getting things in my life that I want to have. A lot of times that's how we make our decision. If our wisdom is characterized by that, it's saying here that it's in the wrong category. <laughs> that's not the wisdom that came from God. God doesn't give us wisdom so that we can design all of these different decisions for our own benefit. He gives us wisdom so that we can make our decisions for His glory. See that difference? And it's sometimes it's very hard to see when we're down into those minute decisions of life. It's hard sometimes to see that big picture and realize that that's the direction that we're going. And then it says that the result of that wisdom, how does it, what does it produce? It's in verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Does that sound familiar? When we make wrong decisions, when we don't take the time to look in God's Word to make a decision, when we don't take the time to pray or maybe get counsel from other godly people, all of a sudden there's just a lot of confusion going on, there's just a lot of disorder, uh, we can't understand what's happening, and, and a lot of evil that's, that's happening along with that. A lot of sin comes along with that. Every evil thing, that's pretty clear, every evil thing is happening in our life as we're going in that wrong direction. Well, as I was looking at these, I could see that uh, I definitely wanted to have the true wisdom from God, <laughs> that kind of result that brings peace, that brings uh, these kind of characteristics, that sounds a lot better than confusion in every evil thing. But I could also see that at times in my life, I am making decisions more in a self-seeking attitude. And you know, maybe you can see that in yourself too. Maybe you can look in your life and say, confusion, evil happening, sin's happening in my life. Yeah, that, that's happening right now. I know for some people it may be that you haven't heard the message of how Jesus Christ has come to put order into your life, how he's come to take away that, that evil, how to take away that sin. And so that, of course, is the first step. You know, for anyone, anywhere in the world, whether here or in the places that we've gone to, to take this word, the very first step is to understand that, yeah, of course there's a lot of sin in my life because I'm a human and we live our lives characterized by sin. But the reason that Jesus Christ came to earth was so that he could be the one to die in our place. Because of our sin, he had to die. He had to suffer. But then to come back to life and be there to provide forgiveness to whoever would really believe in that death and resurrection and trust only in that to completely forgive our sin and to put our lives in the way that he wants it to be, not confused and not full of evil things, but to be peaceable, to be a life that would be lived for him. So that's the first step for anybody that hasn't yet put their trust only in Christ for forgiveness of sin and then to receive the eternal life that he offers as a gift. In fact, that's one of the reasons that this cross is lighted over here for people who would like to talk more about that after the service, that you can just meet over here and talk to somebody to answer more questions about what does that mean? How can I actually trust only in Christ 
to be the one to give me forgiveness of sin because I know I've got sin, but I don't know how to get rid of them. Well, this is a time for you to find out, a time to talk to somebody about that. But I know a lot of you, and I know that I have done that in my life. We have trusted Christ. We have asked him to forgive us of our sins. We have received that gift that he provides to us of eternal life. Only he can give it. And yet still in our lives, sometimes we see that we make that decision based on our own self-seeking way. Well, we also need then to repent of what we've done. We know that we still have our eternal life. That's guaranteed. We still have our salvation. But if you just look down here briefly in chapter 4, let me just read some verses here that guide us into repentance. If you've heard some of these things today and feel like, yeah, there is in the core of my heart more of a self-seeking desire to live rather than humility and wanting God's glory. Look at, look at what chapter 4, verse 7 says about a person that recognizes sin in their life. Anytime we recognize sin in our life, whether we already have Christ as our Savior or not, we can come to the Lord in repentance. And it says in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Remember that demonic wisdom that he was trying to get you to make your decisions based on that? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, there's the external, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, inside, the source of those external actions. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That would be my challenge to myself and to all of us here as we find times that we look at what kind of wisdom we're really using in our life and we find that that really wasn't the wisdom that comes from God's Word. And it really wasn't in a desire to please God, but it was in a desire to get something for me, make my life better, and it was self-seeking. Well, we can repent. God is faithful to hear us and to forgive us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Thank you.